and turn to 1 Samuel 4, if you will. We continue our study of this book. And while you're turning there, oh yeah, 8 to 10-year-olds, you got it, nailed it, good job, all right? You need me less and less each week. Uh, While you are turning there, a word about the leadership discussion this Tuesday, I'd encourage you to come. This is open to anybody. It's not just for leaders. All Christians have influence, and so we we invite you to come to that. It is uh, available at three different times. The idea isn't that you come to all three of these. You, you of course, could if you want, but they're duplicated so that somehow these would fit into your schedule, 6.30 a.m., 12.30, and 5.30. Um, we, when we started our church almost seven years ago, been commissioned. Just wanted to make it very clear that we have a mission from God. We don't get to pick our mission as a church. We have the one that He's given us, and so we started our church off that way. And about a year and a half into that, uh, a number of you were asking, "Well, can you help us um, kind of better share our faith?" And so we spent a couple days, a Friday night and a Saturday, at the residence in there on Highway 69, and did an evangelism training course, uh, produced a big binder for you, and you had all that. And then uh, a couple years ago, we invited a friend of mine, Bobby Blakey, out, and we joined with Canyon Bible Church Prescott Valley and did an evangelism uh, conference, kind of a weekend-long talk on evangelism. Well, here we are a couple years since then, and we're going to do that again in this form, in the leadership discussion form. So uh, this may take uh, one or two of our leadership discussion sessions. We'll do the first one, this first part of it this Tuesday, and then in two months, Lord willing, we'll plan on doing the next part of it, and then two months after that, maybe the third part of it. It comes in training that we've done before, and so I'd invite you all to come to that. Um, ask questions, listen. Uh, I'm going to talk about the, uh, the messenger from God, which is us as His people. We're going to talk about the messenger's message. What are we supposed to tell people? And then the messenger's methods. How do we maybe do this um, more faithfully or effectively, things like that? So that's where we're going. I invite all of you to come to that. Uh, that, if, that announcement officially has no bearing on my sermon time, so uh, don't, don't rush me, okay? First uh, <clears throat> Samuel 4. Um, he's kind of off the scene, people of chapters. And the false worship in Israel, there's been unfaithful leaders, Hophni and Phinehas. And Samuel is going to come on the scene and they're going to be gone. So here's the part where we've been learning about Samuel. Now we're going to kind of focus on the the sons and the false worship in Israel and how they were viewing viewing God wrongly. And we're going to see the Lord take care of that issue before Samuel comes back onto the scene. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been, um, well, many of you are sports fans. Uh, those of you who aren't sports fans, if you've ever been married to a sports fan or been friends with a sports fan, they do some crazy things. Um, you may have had the experience where uh, you're watching a game with a sports fan. Let's say it's a Super Bowl, Super Bowl party, and a lot of people around, a lot of food around and things like that. And, and there's one person that's really into the game. His team's playing. And uh, he's got the jersey on, as if that helps somehow, but he's got the jersey on. Uh, I have jerseys. Uh, He's got the jersey on. He's watching the game. And let's say his team, you know, on the opening drive, they they get three first downs in a row. They're just marching down the field, and you're sitting there watching because you're interested. You've got your, you know, chili and dip and everything. And, And all of a sudden, you get up to go get something to drink, and he grabs you. You can't move. You can't get up. They're marching down the field, and you've been sitting here. If you move, they'll all of a sudden be stopped. You ever had a sports fan do something like that? (laughs) Happens all the time. It's superstition, and it's alive and well in the sports world. By the way, if you're ever at a Christian's home and they're doing that, just get up and keep going and tell them, (laughs) we don't believe in superstition, remember? Um, But it's not just sports fans that do that. The people of God are sometimes superstitious when it comes to Him. You ask how, we'll get to that a little bit later. But here in this passage, we see the people of God treating God as if He's a good luck charm. He's a good luck charm and He's going to help them if they just carry His presence in the Ark of the Covenant to this battle. He's going to help them. Well, He doesn't. They have the symbol of His presence in this battle with their enemies and their enemies win. What's up with that? What's happening here? That's what our text is showing us. This people of God, the people of God here in 1 Samuel 4, continue to mistreat God, belittle Him, if you will, 
minimize him, and we see that in a rather staggering way in this passage for Samuel 4. Today is basically a lesson in how not to treat God. Here's a lesson in how not to treat God, and here's the first part of this passage. Let's focus on the mistreatment of God or the the wrong response to God, whatever you want to call it. I'm calling it the mistreatment of God. You see this in verses 1 through 11. Remember last week we ended our passage because it fits better with chapter 3. We ended in the first part of chapter 4 verse 1, and the word of the Lord came And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. I reminded you last week that the word of the Lord hadn't been prevalent during that time. And all of a sudden, God raises up a prophet, and he's going to speak through Samuel. So Samuel's word is going to be the word of the Lord to his people. So that's a high point. That's a good thing. So we ended there. And now, again, as I said earlier, we're going to see the, the... the, the nation, the nation's leadership that was existing before Samuel, we're going to start to see that crumble. And so here's the sad tale of how these people went about treating the Lord, responding to the Lord. The word of the Lord came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. Just some context here so you understand. The Philistines are rather new into this neighborhood, the Palestinian area. They're new here. They've only been there for maybe about 100 years or so. And so you've got the people of God have this land. This this is supposed to be our land. They were supposed to clear out all their enemies who rebelled against the one true and living God. They come to the promised land, Israel does. And one of the groups that wasn't, that, that they hadn't fully eradicated yet were the Philistines. So there's this war between Israel and the Philistines. And this is this is what happens here. Israel is now going to go out to battle against the Philistines, which was a, a common thing during that time. They had a number of battles. So they're about to go into battle against this, this group of people. This group of people, again, hadn't been in this region that long. They were a sea people. They came from the area of Phoenicia, modern-day Greece, if you will. They, they'd kind of migrated over to this area. They said, by Phoenicia, and came all the way over here to this area, and now they're, with, now they're next door to Israel. So they're near the Mediterranean Sea. Israel's more in the mountains, and there's conflict between the two nations. So they encamped, the Israelites, at Ebenezer, a place of remembrance, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek, one of their five big cities. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines. Now notice, just, just a couple verses before this, or just a verse before this, we learn that the word of, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So we start to think, this is good. Israel's going to prosper and grow. And all of a sudden, First Samuel, the writer, tells us, but now Israel loses the battle to the Philistines. And so you say, like, what in the world is going on here? I thought the nation was about to be blessed. Well, again, God is showing us how he's going to rebuke and bring an end to the false worship happening in Israel. And he's going to use them being defeated to do so. So they're defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? And then it's almost as if they don't wait for a response. They ask a good question, why has the Lord defeated us? And then they think of a solution. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, so that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies." So the people sent to Shiloh and brought the ark, brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. There's the full title of the ark of the covenant, if you will. The ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, who is enthroned on the cherubim. So they say, we've lost this battle. What in the world is God doing here? We got an idea. Go get the ark from Shiloh, bring it. And so when we bring the ark, we're going to defeat the Philistines now because we have the ark with us. That's their thinking. This ark, two and a half by three and a half, not a big, not a big box. It's just a box, two and a half by three and a half, overlaid in gold. The, the top of it was called the mercy seat. It was a symbol of God's presence and also his mercy. The fact that the ark was dwelling in the midst of a people was showing the mercy of God because those people didn't deserve the presence of God. So the ark is a sign of his mercy. It's a sign of his dwelling with them. It's also a sign of his power over the whole world. You ask, well, how is that ark a sign of that? Well, he's enthroned above the cherubim, these two 
angel-like figures over the ark. It's as if that is his footstool, so he's sitting enthroned on the ark. So he's reigning, the, reigning over the world through, through this area, Shiloh, later Jerusalem. He's reigning from Jerusalem, from Shiloh, over all the world, and he's in the immediate presence of his people. So you see his reign, you see his mercy, you see all sorts of things. And so the people of God at different times throughout their history have thought and treated this ark with, with reverence and awe. This is a sign and we get it. God is reigning here. But these people are using it as a good luck charm now to help defeat the Philistines in battle. So notice again verse 4, they send to Shiloh. Brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Okay, now we see why things aren't going well. Those two sons again come up. So they're evidently leading this procession. They've got the Ark with them. And so now we know, aha, now I see why God is not blessing them during this time. Verse 5, as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout. That's a shout of confidence. That's a shout of victory and triumph. They're assured they're going to win. So that the earth resounded, hyperbole there. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? So they've just defeated Israel, killed 4,000 of their soldiers. Now all of a sudden, a little bit later, they hear this shout and they think, why the shouting? Why this confidence? What does this shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. They're scared. And the author's showing us that. He says they're afraid. Then they pronounce a curse on themselves, not once but twice. They're freaked out here because a God from the Hebrews, or gods from the Hebrews, they don't know about Yahweh, the one true and living God. Nations had multiple gods. So some of the gods of the Hebrews are here. That's why they're so confident. And why would that scare the Philistines? Let's keep looking. Verse 8, woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. So God's works back in Exodus had had, been, had become known. Actually, God says that's one of the reasons He hardened Pharaoh's heart in Exodus 9, so that His works would be known. And here it is, part of the fulfillment of that, the Philistines had heard about what the gods of the Hebrews did. It's the one true and living God, but the Philistines don't know that. The gods of the Hebrews are the ones that defeated this powerful nation, Egypt, and that's why the Philistines are scared now. These gods are now going to fight against us. Verse 9, take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and you'd think the next line would be, and they lost. They suffered in battle, and Israel was defeated. The enemy wins here. God's up to something. And they fled, Israel fled every man to his home. Now, that term doesn't mean they just, they just kind of went home for a little bit. That means they put an end to their own military service. I'm done fighting. I'm done with this. I'm going home. I'm going to go back into farming, whatever it is. Everyone fled, every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter. Notice this, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. We thought 4,000 was a lot. Surely, if they've got this good luck charm, if they've got the ark of God, they'll win. No, they didn't just win. They lost even worse. 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured. The Philistines obtained the ark, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. This is a sad story. Evidently, evidently, God is not pleased with what Israel's doing. That may seem like quite the understatement. God's not pleased with what Israel's doing. They are mistreating God. They're responding to Him wrongly. They have been for a long time. Remember the, the priests, Hophni and Phinehas and Eli, 
despising the offering of the Lord, not, not appreciating the rules that he set forth in how to give sacrifice. They didn't care about that. No, no, let the fat burn before you take the meat. I don't care about the fat. Give me the fat. This is what they were doing. They were, they were mistreating God, belittling God, not being concerned with his word. And this is what it leads to. It does not lead to thriving. Listen, let me say that again. If you are belittling God's word, mistreating him, not responding to him rightly, don't think that you're going to succeed. It does not lead to thriving. It leads to suffering here. These people are violating the third commandment, taking the name of the Lord in vain. The Westminster Catechism tells us that when we engage in superstition and empty rituals, it's as if we're taking the name of the Lord in vain. We're, we're, we're belittling Him. We're not treating Him as, as wonderful and, and, and awesome. But these people are involved in a sort of superstition here. Jesus warns about this often, T- tells us not what we shouldn't put our trust in. Don't put your trust in the fact that you've, you're following all the outward laws. God wants the heart. This is a theme of God to His people. In Matthew 3, there are a group of people in that time that were trusting in the fact that they were born into the right family. We're sons of Abraham. That's kind of a superstitious way to live. We're sons of Abraham. We're going to be blessed by God. What did Jesus say when he came on the scene? Don't, don't consider it such a wonderful thing to be children of Abraham. I'll raise up worshipers from these stones. You repent and bear fruits in keeping with repentance. God wants the heart of his people, not their superstitious reasons for, for being blessed. We're these people, we do this thing, we have this object, so therefore God should bless us. No, it doesn't work like that. God is after the heart. In fact, turn, turn over a couple of pages. In 1 Samuel 7, Samuel's going to come back on the scene in a couple of weeks here. We're going to see this. But notice where he brings Israel. Israel has, brought, has been brought low by God. He's allowed them to suffer defeat. And notice verse 3 of, of chapter 7. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, Notice that phrase, all your heart. If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. That's so important. So that passage right there informing our passage before us today, what did God want from the Israelites? He wanted their heart. He wanted their heart to be his. And they're just using symbols to say, see, God's going to bless us. We have the box. He wanted their heart. And notice, if they gave him their heart, if they returned to him with all of their heart, he would deliver them out of the hands of the Philistines. Back to 1 Samuel 4. They're engaged in a superstition. They're engaged in this idea that Just because they're the people of God, God's always going to bless them. We might despise his sacrifices. We might might worship foreign gods. We might do all that, but but we're his people. He's going to bless us. Nope. You can't fool God. You can't trick him. How do we do this today? I think there are a number of reasons. I'd encourage you to ask the Lord, Lord, is there any way that I, I treat you like this? That I treat you of more, more like my mascot than my Lord? Is there any way that I treat you like, like just an insurance policy? When I need you, I'll call on you, but otherwise I'm good. There are many ways we do this. I, I thought of examples of uh, wearing you know, a cross necklace. Nothing wrong with that, by the way, so, so you're okay. But, but, but it's how you wear it. So, you wear that as a sign of my Savior did this for me, wonderful. But, if you've got a difficult day coming up and you're going to rush out of the house and you think, oh, I've got to wear my cross necklace so the Lord blesses me today, that's superstitious. That's not how you approach God. He's not to be used. What about daily devotions? 
if I don't get up and read my Bible, then God's not going to bless me today. It's a superstition. Reading the Bible is not about reading the Bible. Reading the Bible is about communing with God and learning from Him so that it changes your heart and leads to obedience. Just, just going through the motions of reading the Bible, okay, okay, I read five chapters, what's it about? I don't know, but I read it, so God's going to bless me today. Now, people don't say that out loud, but we do that type of thing. Be careful of how you approach your daily devotions. We sometimes make it a superstitious thing. If I wake up and go through the motions, it's going to be a good day. Or we do it the opposite way. Man, why are you having such a tough day? Well, I slept in. I didn't read my Bible this morning. Superstition. It's not the way God relates to His people. Read your Bible. Love your Bible. Meditate on your Bible. Commune with the God who's revealed in the Word. Read and pause and praise Him for something you read in there. The Bible's meant to bring you into a relationship with God day after day after day, to hear His words, to respond back to Him in praise and thanksgiving. See, a lot of people think of reading the Bible as, as like going to fries to buy cucumbers. I'll explain what I mean by that, okay? <laughs> I need to be healthy. Vegetables. Vegetables are a way to be healthy. So you go to fries and you buy cucumbers. Question, are you more healthy yet? No. You just bought the cucumbers. You need to take said cucumbers in to grow in health. The same thing, buying cucumbers. Oh, look at this passage. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, 1 John 5. I believe that. I believe in Jesus. God, you've made me to believe in Jesus. You've birthed me again. Lord, thank you for interrupting the path of my life when I was in college and stopping and saying, no, you're going to be born again. You're going to be my child. Lord, thank you for 1 John 5. I praise you for that. That's the type of Bible reading that that, that brings a heart of worship, responding to God's Word, not just using His Word for a good luck charm. We do this in a number of different ways. I'll give you another one. The sinner's prayer. The the sinner's prayer, there's no such sinner's prayer in the Scripture. The the Scriptures point to crying out to the Lord for mercy. Okay, so if you want to call that the sinner's prayer, that's fine. But, But in today's day and age, you'll have people that say, well, I prayed the prayer when I was seven. Like the prayer, like there's an actual the prayer that you're supposed to pray. Now, now, a lot of the sinner's prayers that are out there, I, I think, are actually good prayers, especially when they use the word repentance, and I need your forgiveness, and I trust in you alone, and that type of thing. Like, if you pray that, if you see those, a prayer like that printed on a paper, and you pray that, and your heart is trusting in Jesus because of that, that brings salvation. Not the prayer, the faith to trust in Jesus. He saves you, and He uses faith to do that. Not works, faith. But it wasn't the prayer that saved. It wasn't reciting a certain formula that saved. So, so when there's something on a paper called the sinner's prayer, <clears throat> I, I usually think those, those are helpful words. Those are good words, usually. What I have a hard time with is the words at the end of the prayer, whether it's on a tract or in a book or, or a, a preacher leads you through something like that. They say, now that you've said this prayer, welcome to the kingdom of God. That's treating that prayer like a superstitious formula. Because how do you know, sir or ma'am, how do you know that when that person recited that prayer, they're immediately in the kingdom of God? God doesn't do salvation by a formulaic prayer. Now, could the person from their heart prayed that prayer, cried out to God for mercy and been saved? Absolutely. But could a person say that prayer not meant it from the heart, not truly repented from their sin, not truly trusted in Christ alone for salvation, yes, that could happen as well. But we get into these superstitions. If you say this, then God's going to save you. Not true. There are people in Matthew 7 that said, Lord, Lord, 
We did all these things in your name. And he said, depart from me, I never knew you. So just calling him Lord, you can use that as a superstition. We call him Lord, so we're good with him. No, not necessarily. There are many other examples of Christian superstitions out there. You may think of some that you have yourself. Again, I didn't read my Bible today. Maybe that's why I'm having such a bad day. That's superstitious talk. Here's the question. Were you a child of God this morning when you slept in? Yes. There you go. His favor is upon you. It may be that He allowed you to have a difficult day for different reasons. Let's not start treating Him like a lucky charm or a rabbit's foot. So, is there any way that you're treating God more like a genie rather than your daily object of worship? He's an amazing God. Every page of Scripture reveals His amazing character in multifaceted way. This is an amazing God, a God to be worshipped and adored, not used. God is not there to be useful. He's there to be worshipped. Friend, how are you treating God? Again, this is a study on how not to treat God. We've seen the mistreatment of God. Now in verses 12 to 22, let's notice the departure of God. The departure of God. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. You know what that's a sign of, right? It's a sign of mourning. This man is sad. He's ran about 20 miles back to Shiloh. He's wearing the clothes of a grieving man, clothes torn with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. It's interesting, Eli's blind, we know that, we've been told that already. We'll be reminded of that again. But Eli's, the idea that he's watching isn't a term of the eyes. he's, He's waiting, listening, paying attention. He's waiting for news from the battlefield. Seated by the road watching, for his heart trembled for his sons? No. Trembled that Israel would gain more territory? No. His heart's trembling for the ark of God. He would have known it was gone. He may have even been the one that said, go ahead and take it. He was the priest of Shiloh. He would know that this ark is gone, and he's waiting for the ark. He's part of this problem. His heart trembled for the ark of God, and when the man came into the city, and told the news, all the city cried out. There's a second cry out of this passage. The first cry is, we got the ark, we're going to win this thing. They lose the thing, and now they're crying out in desperation and mourning after hearing this news. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, And his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He brought the news and said, and he lists four things that happened in the battle. From the least worrisome to the most worrisome. Israel has fled before the Philistines. Two, there has been a great defeat among the people. Three, Your sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And four, the ark of God has been captured. Verse 18, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, (coughs) and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. (coughs) Notice, He doesn't fall over and die, and he's not heartbroken when his sons die. It was part of the package, but ultimately it was his response to hearing that the ark of the Lord had been captured that killed him. Eli is not a faithful priest at the beginning of this book. He's not. But even, I think, in his wrong view of so many things, his wrong view of parenting his sons, his wrong view of worship, whatever it may be, there was still a concern he had for the ark of God. That was good. He knew that this was a big deal. We're seeing in front of us the surpassing of Samuel, the surpassing of Eli and his sons by Samuel. That's what the author is doing. Listen, 
Israel as a nation is a mess. Even the priests are a mess. They treat God like this. But God is going to see to it that he raises a leader that can benefit his people because that's what God is like. But here we're seeing the, the one um, family, the, the one administration give way to the next and the better one. It's interesting that in Hebrew, when you've got, when you've got um, a competition, so to speak, uh, think of Haman and Esther. When you've got a competition, the victor, their name, their literal name is mentioned one more time than the one they defeat in the Scriptures, in the verses that are, that are given. I'll give you examples of that. In Daniel 5, Belshazzar is mentioned six times. Daniel, the one who would take over, is mentioned seven times. In Judges, Gideon, 39 times. Abimelech, the one who would take over for Gideon, 40 times. Again, Esther, in Esther, Haman is mentioned 54 times. Maybe Haman's going to win this thing. He's prominent in this passage. Oh, God's going to use a woman named Esther. Guess how many times she's named? 55 times. 1 Samuel 1 to 3, Eli is named 24 times. Samuel, you guessed it, 25 times. The writer is showing us God's not going to allow this false worship to continue. His name will be great in Israel, and he's going to raise up a prophet. He has raised up a prophet, and he will start to speak and lead the nation. Let's see if the nation responds to his leadership. But God has given this prophet Samuel. So you're seeing the end of this evil administration. It's as if you, you bought a house, you bought this, you know, you, you went to this auction and bought this house that was previously foreclosed, and, and it's, it's a mess, it's a junkyard of a house, and you say, we're going to fix that thing up. And so you get to the house, and you start putting up new wallpaper, you start painting. Do people do wallpaper anymore? I don't know. You start painting. You're back in the 70s, by the way, fixing up this house. Okay. Uh, you don't just start building the new because there's still like rats over there, an old couch with holes in it here. You get the old out and then you rebuild the new. That's what's happening in this passage. The old is coming out. And as the old is going out, we're seeing what was wrong with the old. Look at how they treated God. They were using God as more of a mascot, a genie, rather than their object of worship and adoration and love. One more interesting feature before we go to the next paragraph not, there's not a lot of times in Scripture where you learn about a person's weight, but it's brought up here, and it was mentioned before. Why in the world is God talking about Eli's weight? I mean, God, we don't really do that, you know? It's kind of politically incorrect, but, but it's here. Why is it here? The word for glory comes from the root word kabed which means to be heavy or honored. The word glory has a synonym, it's heavy. When we think of the glory of God, like God is heavy, He's weighty, there's something to Him. That's what the word means. You, we know why Eli was heavy, right? Because remember, he benefited from the ways that his sons would steal from God and the people. They stole meat from God and the people, and they filled themselves, and they were heavy. And so was their father. So their father profited from their evil leadership, their stealing of God and their stealing of the people. You could say Eli himself then was a, a thief of the people and a thief from God. He took God's glory and took it for himself. So he's the weighty one when God should be the weighty one, the one with glory and adoration. So there's a play on words here. Here's why Eli's judged. God will not share his glory. He will not share his glory. You think of today. You, you got mega church after mega church arising, and, and articles are written about the pastor and, and all the things going on that they do. After a while, it starts to seem like God's sharing some of his glory with these people. It's no surprise that so many of those churches don't last 70, 80, 90, 100 years. Why? God doesn't share his glory. He's not going to share it here. And Eli dies. Heavy. Verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed 
and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. She, her, her agony leads her to give this premature birth. And about the time of her death, the women attending to her said, don't be afraid. You've born a son. They're trying to encourage her. You've born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel. The word Ichabod meaning, where is the glory? Because the ark of God has been captured, she says, and because of her, of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. This woman, too, part of a corrupt family. How much of the corruption was she involved in? We don't know. We don't know. Maybe she knew about her husband Phineas being being a, a, a man who was a priest and looked one way out in public and then was different at home. Certainly she would have known that this, her husband would have had, an, had immoral relationships with all sorts of women. The, the, the word tells us that in the earlier chapters. This was known in Israel. She would have known this. She's in this family where there's adultery going on with her own husband, who's a priest, meant to stand between God and the people. She's in this family where the, the three males, at least, in the family gorge themselves on the meat that's taken from God and from His people. That's the type of family she's living in. And we don't know much about this lady other than she knows that it's a problem that God has been removed from the nation. Will this lady be with us in heaven? We don't know. But there's a certain, there's a certain agonizingly sweet response from her. It's a problem that God has left the nation, and she knows that. The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. This was their symbol. The ark was their symbol that God was dwelling with them, and they were secure with Him, and they were protected by their enemies. So you see why when it's gone, it's such a big deal to them. It's as if God has left them. What a horrible thought. The people of God, so used to being in the presence of God, then one day really realizing God is no longer blessing us. God has upset at us. He's left us. You know that's not just an Old Testament reality. Jesus warns of this. In Revelation 2, He speaks to the church at Ephesus. And before He starts speaking to them, there's kind of this, this preface, and it says this, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, this is Jesus, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Each church, each local church has a lampstand. They're a light. And Jesus is walking around the churches. Jesus knows what's going on in every single local church. And this church in Ephesus is allowed to have their light, and he's walking around. He knows what's going on, and he's got words for this church in Ephesus. He tells them that they, they do so many good things, but he's got this against them. They've left their first love. Again, see the people of God in 1 Samuel 4. They had an adoration problem. They had a worship problem. Their lives are full of superstition, going through the motions of religion, but there's not a reverence for the true and living God. Here in Ephesus, New Testament church, you've left your first love. And listen to what he says in Revelation 2.5, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I'll take your church away. Jesus wants worshipers. Jesus doesn't need our brand Jesus doesn't need Kenyon Bible Church of Prescott. Jesus doesn't need our logo to be out in Prescott. Jesus doesn't need us to be famous. Jesus doesn't need any of that. He's not impressed when you've got a church with a huge communications department or whatever else it may be or a church that puts on Christmas pageants with real live donkeys. He's not impressed by any of that. Jesus is to be adored Jesus is to be worshipped, trusted, listened to, obeyed. This group, 1 Samuel 4, didn't do that. This group in Ephesus, they left their first love. Jesus doesn't just sit back and allow that to happen. Again, we hear of 
churches failing and, and things happening in churches, and, and sometimes the, the idea is, how could that happen to that church? <laughs> of course it could happen. Happened to Israel. Happened at Ephesus. Happens all over the place. God is not enamored by all that a church is doing. He's there to be Lord. Are they worshiping Him? Are they trusting Him? Or are they engaged in Christian superstition? Or are they engaged in the idea that God's blessed us, He's always going to bless us. We just got to keep pushing the buttons and pulling the right levers. It's not how it works. It's not how it works in churches. It's also not how it works in extended families. I know, sadly enough, so many families that had one or two generations in the Lord, solid, worshiping families, and then the third and fourth generation just assumes that God's always going to bless this family. And their hearts are far from the Lord, and those third and fourth generation families start to fall apart, and there's chaos. But there's an assumption, but we're God's people. Well, it appears that the glory's departed. So, do not presume that the Lord is obligated to bless us when we have lukewarm hearts. Do not presume upon God's goodness as if He always owes it to us. The Lord can take away a lampstand today from a church. Now, what do you do if you're convicted this morning? Here's how I want to shepherd you after we read 1 Samuel 4. What do you do if you're convicted? Here's what a lot of Christians do when they're convicted by sin, convicted by a sermon, convicted by something they read in their Bibles. They always and immediately ask the question, well, then am I really a Christian? And let me just say that's not the first question to ask. When you're convicted by sin, own it. Just own it. I've, I've belittled the Lord. I've not treated Him as worthy of my worship. I've even used Him, like, superstitiously to get what I want. I've done something in the line of what Israel's done in 1 Samuel 4. So what do you do? You own it. Be corrected without the fear of damnation. See, what we do as Christians, like, I've sinned, oh, maybe I'm going to hell. You're forgetting the gospel of Jesus Christ. He came to die for sinners. So own it, be corrected, without worrying about hell and damnation. Trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus. You know that after Paul was saved, he sinned again? You know that after Peter was restored to Jesus on that beach, he misrepresented the gospel in Galatians 2? After they were united to Christ. We're, we're going to be sinning and stumbling and bumping along. Hopefully there is more righteousness coming too, but we're going to sin as believers. The thing that we don't do is every time we sin, maybe I'm not really Christian, maybe you are and it's a good sign that you feel bad about it. Now just admit that you have and trust and rejoice in the fact that He forgives you. Listen, 1 Samuel 7 is coming. There's hope for the people of God that have treated God like this. He says to come back to the Lord with their heart, and He will defeat their enemies. There, there's restoration available in Christ. I've been meditating on Romans 10.4 lately. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Maybe you say, it wasn't just the people in 1 Samuel 4 that violated the third commandment. I've violated the third commandment. I've treated God this way. Listen, here's the hope for you. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Christ obeyed every single one of the Ten Commandments perfectly. He's the, he, he's, he fulfilled it in that way. He obeyed the law perfectly. He's the righteous standard, and He's the end of the law for righteousness. He, he's the fulfillment of the law for your righteousness if you... Have more good days than bad days. If you promise you'll never violate command three again. No, no. He will give you his righteousness if you believe. Trust him. Trust him for your righteousness. So what do you do if you think that you've broken that third commandment? And 1 Samuel 4 was used to bring that out in your heart today. 
then you say, Jesus, thank you for being my righteousness. I have none of my own. Now change me so I don't violate that commandment. Thank you for teaching me this morning how I've been approaching you wrongly, and thank you that I am surrounded by your grace. That's how a Christian receives conviction. They go to the cross with it, and they're forgiven of it, and they ask Jesus to help them to not do what's in 1 Samuel 4. I want to highlight one final thing. This lady that died, the son-in-law of the, uh, sorry, daughter-in-law of Eli, the wife of Phineas, she said the glories departed Israel. The glory has left Israel for a time. It's been captured. The ark has been captured by the Philistines. Next week, we'll see how that works out for them. God's still powerful, evidently, even if he's with the Philistines. So he's with the Philistines. The glories departed Israel. Evidently, the favor of God in that sense is not on Israel right now. There, there's a cleaning of the house happening, and God's not here right now. Listen, the character of God is to get his people's attention, to warn them, and then to woo them back to him. Again, he'll do that in 1 Samuel 7. But this idea that the glory of God isn't around. You go to John chapter 1. How does John start his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is John introducing Jesus to us. He was in the beginning. Jesus was around when 1 Samuel 4 happened. Jesus knew all about his people being in their sin, not treating him rightly. The glory departed from that group of people. But what happened when Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago? Verse 14 of chapter 1 in John. And the Word, this Word, became flesh. And what did this Word that was flesh do? Dwelt. That's the opposite of Ichabod. Ichabod, the glory's departed. Jesus comes to earth, the glory's here now. The glory's staying, the glory's dwelling. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory. You see Jesus, you're, this man is amazing. This man is showing us what God is like. This man is God in human flesh. The Word dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory, glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's full of grace and truth. Jesus, God comes to earth, and you might think, God, when He comes, He's bringing truth. And what could God say in truth? There's a worship problem in Israel. There was a worship problem in 1 Samuel 4 and 1100 BC. There was a worship problem in the first century. There's a worship problem today all over the earth. And you think the God of truth would say, I'm done with this world. But the God of truth rightly condemns the world, but then also he's a God of grace for the world. He's a God of truth, rightly assessing the world's problems, rightly assessing Israel's problems, our problems. He's also a God of grace. When God comes, you see truth and you see grace. Why? Because that's who he is. Jesus came to show us grace and truth. So what do we do with that? John 1, 29, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, everyone look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The people in 1 Samuel 4 need their sin taken away. You and I need our sin taken away. And John the Baptist said, everyone look, here's the one sent by God who's going to take away sin. And then in verse 35, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. And here's the response. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. So listen, there was a problem in 1 Samuel 4. The people didn't respond to God rightly. There's a problem today. All we like sheep have gone astray. Romans 3, all of us have sinned against the glory of God. All of us have sinned against God. But Jesus came as God with grace for sinners. 
So if you are a person who's belittled God, who's not responded to God, not ever had God as your Lord, you're in sin, and God has given you a way to be right with Him. It's through His own Son, Jesus Christ. And in that sense, Jesus has come to dwell with you. I love what George Whitfield said when people talked about after he died, what, what will we call your followers? We've got the Wesleyans, we've got the Lutherans. What are we going to call you? And I love what Whitfield's response was because, in many ways, I think Whitfield was a little uncomfortable with the idea that, that he's using God to make much of him. Kind of like what was happening in Israel in 1 Samuel 4, using God to make them a great nation, but oh no, what's happened? Why are we defeated? Because you're using God. Adore God, worship God. Whitfield, when he was asked, what are your followers going to be called? He said this, let the name of George Whitfield perish so long as Christ is exalted. Whitfield was jealous for the glory of God. Not his own name. He wasn't seeking to use God for his own fame. He simply wanted Jesus Christ to be adored. I think that's a great place to end this morning. Lord, would you simply use us first to adore you, but then use us to see you adored. Let's pray. Father, thank you for teaching us about the idea that even your people who've received so many benefits from you can start to think very lightly of you, very little of you. We can even start to use you for our own comfort and our own purposes rather than the opposite, which is asking you to use us for your glory. Lord, thank you for the forgiveness that you have, that you give in Jesus Christ, your Son, the one who dwells with us, the one who remains with us. We don't deserve your presence, but we have it. Father, I think the last thing I want to do this morning is to pray for this church five months from now, five years from now, five decades from now. May this be a community of faith and more added to it that reveres your Son. Let that be what happens in these walls and beyond these walls. Please keep us from being enamored with who we are. Please keep us from being enamored with our way of doing things. Please keep us being, from being presumptuous when it comes to your blessing. We need your blessing every day. We need humility. We need to trust you. We need you to be worshiped in our sight. Lord, keep us near you. Keep us near you. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.